Good morning and welcome. It's good to see everybody this morning as you're making your way in. I hope you got a bulletin. Let's remain standing for our confession of faith. I invite you to turn to page 845, the Apostles' Creed. While you're getting there, that song that we just sang, you may have heard it on the radio to a different tune, but it's cool to hear it have a new lease on life, but then to see that that song has existed for a long time. Okay, I will ask the question, and you can respond. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now we have the chance to confess our sins together through this prayer. So would you please join with me this prayer that's printed for us in the bulletin. Father, you tell us in your word that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We confess that we have frequently relaxed our faith in order to serve our idols. We have allowed ourselves to become cynical and our cynicism has boiled over with slander, criticism, prayerlessness, and pessimism. How easily we've allowed ourselves to crumple under the stresses of our lives. Forgive us for our smallness of faith. In your mercy, hear us. For Jesus' sake, amen. And again, I hope you see as we pray prayers like this, we, we confess that we're far from perfect and we need, we need God's grace to live, the, to live the way that he wants us to live. We don't do this on our own. We do this by his grace and through the encouragement of one another. But hear the answer to the prayer that we just prayed from Psalm 32, 3 through 5. <clears throat> For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away all through my groaning all day, all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Brothers and sisters, be confident that Jesus has taken care of your sin and my sin, that when we confess it, we have the confidence that our sins are forgiven. Now is the time that we get to worship the Lord in giving, so I'm going to invite those who are going to receive these uh, tithes and offerings to come on up while I pray, and then we can be seated during the offering. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you that you have given us strength enough to be here, strength to use our voices and to lift up our hearts. And now, Lord, we, we lift up our hands and we lift up everything to you. We give back to you a portion of what you've given to us. Because we love you and trust you, and we are committed to your mission in this world, your mission of reaching the nations. 
here in our community and throughout this world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Heavenly Father, please bless us through your word. Help us to grasp the truths that only you can reveal to us. Let us understand the mysteries that have now been revealed so that we might serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll be seated and take your Bibles, I'll give you a moment to turn with me to the book of Hebrews where we have been studying faithfully through, and I know it's a journey for some of you. If you've never journeyed through a book of the Bible together, I know uh, I was teasing uh, with Christy this past week. Sometimes books can get long and drawn out, and you begin to wonder why it is that commentaries are written and books are written is when you spend an entire year and a half and sometimes two studying a book and getting into it, you might as well write the commentaries that go with them and you might as well put the stuff out there for people to have. So I guess my point is I'm waiting for you to write a commentary and all the stuff that you've learned. Uh, but we come to a critical time this morning. Here at the last part of chapter 9, I've chosen to take it together because I don't want to separate the teaching of how Christ's sacrifice institutes the new covenant and separate that from his sacrifice and how it prepares us for all eternity. If you're here this morning, my prayer is that when you leave this place, you will be more eager in waiting his return than when you came. And the only way that happens is when we truly understand the scriptures of what was necessary for this superior sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, we've spent our lives listening to one of the most famous, well-known passages of Scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we focus our entire life on that Jesus died because God loves us. That's true. This morning, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that it's the love of Christ or the love of God that sent Christ, yes. But it was necessary for Christ to die for the love of God to ever be received. And so this morning, I'm challenging you to realize that it's more than just God loves us and gave us his son. It's because without his son, there would be no inheritance. There would be no blessing. There would be no fulfillment. It wasn't just, I'm not saying his love isn't important, and I'm not saying it should be separated out. I'm saying we need to start living and realizing the necessity of Christ in our life, not just that he loves us and so we love him back. Do you see the necessity of Christ for you? Here's what the passage says in chapter 9 of Hebrews. It starts in verse 15 where we left off. It's a lot. Let me just read it so you'll catch the just of this covenant its necessary ratification through death, and then the implications that death has. Listen to what it says, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, speaking about all that took place of the redemption and the sprinkling of his blood of Jesus Christ, therefore he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For there, for where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. 
For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And what is the better sacrifices? For Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are only copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrificing of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Man, what a blessing when we start talking about this important understanding of the sacrifice of Christ. And I challenge you this morning in several different ways to understand just what it is he's done for you. Do you focus on the necessity of Christ? What the writer would tell us is the superior satisfaction of the sacrifice of Christ. Let me give it to you why we think it is a superior sacrifice. Up to now, we've learned through Hebrews that everything in the tabernacle and temple and the sprinklings and the sacrifices and the ceremonial washings are all inadequate. Up to now, the writer has painted the picture that if you're still trying to live under the impressions of what the old could do for you, it's inadequate. You'll never make it. You'll never find what it is you're looking for. You'll never be cleansed. You won't be in the presence of God. You're probably not eagerly awaiting his return because you're worried about what your standing is before him. Things just aren't falling into place. This Christianity just isn't making sense. This new covenant just doesn't seem to fit for me. And it's because you've never understood completely how Christ's sacrifice is superior or supreme. This is what he writes to tell us. He's made it crystal clear in this passage, and I'll try to make it clear to you, that what's happening is that our acceptance with God, the removal of our guilt, and the cleanliness of our conscience only takes place through the substitutionary atonement or sacrifice of Christ. So what he's really saying to us is, what else are you leaning on this morning to feel right with God other than Jesus Christ? If I were to ask you the age-old question that we've said many a times when Dr. James Kennedy wrote The Evangelism Explosion, 
If we were to ask God today why he should let you into his kingdom, what would you say? It's one of the hardest questions that an unbeliever faces. Because they begin to grapple with everything they've done in their life. Well, God should let me in because I'm a good person. I haven't really hurt anybody. I mean, I've never been in jail. I've never even gotten a speeding ticket. I've never gone against anybody. I haven't blasphemed anybody. I'm still married to the same person when we were 18. We've never left each other. We've never been unfaithful to each other. And we begin to go down the list. And if you've ever asked that question to someone, they never stop talking. Because within their own justification, they realize that the more stuff they rattle off, the more stuff they need. I think it's God's wonderful way of trying to touch their hearts already to let them know that, all right, let me keep coming, keep coming, that's right. Well, I'm, I'm great at what I do, my job loves me, I've been promoted, my family's doing well, we're healthy, we, all right, keep it coming, come on. Well, my friends, they think I'm the greatest person in the world, my church has me serving, I've nominated for a deacon, I'm up for eldership, I've even thought about seminary, oh, come on, keep it coming, keep it. and pretty soon you're like, is that enough? Am I going to make it? And now you're asking the question. See, the question was asked you, why should he let you in? And when you're done, you're asking, well, is that enough for me to get in? And we realize already there is nothing we have ever done or could do to ever measure up and be enough to be right with God and accepted in his presence than to have the supreme sacrifice or substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Have you called upon the name of Christ to cover your sins and forgive you? If you have, listen what the writer says about this, the sacrifice, the necessity to take place for the covenant to be ratified. I know it sounds confusing at first, but listen to this. All the Old Testament pointed to the new. The old covenant from the beginning was a covenant that pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. Every believer in the Old Testament, every person who was considered a child of Abraham by faith, every person that was called by God rested in the salvation that would come in the future. They longed for the Messiah. They waited for them. They wanted the sacrifice that would work. They wanted the opportunity to be made right. They were saved looking forward. They gloried in the cross that was to come. Today we're saved in a cross looking backward, retrospectively. If you're trying to accomplish it today or find another or come up with another great prophet, someone else who could die or take the place, another sacrifice, another substitution, maybe you've tried to find it in other religions and other opportunities, other scenarios, the writer makes it clear that all the Eastern philosophies and religions that challenge us today are untrue. Because we do not believe in what is known as a reincarnation in multiple opportunities or a cycle of life or samsara or a karma that will come back. We believe the scripture simply says that man is appointed to die what? Once. And then what? Judgment. If you're here this morning and you don't understand what Christ has done for you and you've never called upon Christ... I'm here to reiterate what he says, you're going to die once, and then you're going to face what? 
judgment. Unless, but, or therefore, we have something superior than what everything in the old could provide for us. Unless we've gone beyond our own works and the works of the animals and the works of the earthly priests, if we've moved beyond that which everything else longed to move beyond, we get to this point now where we realize all the saints together are being saved through the blood of Christ. The covenant was only old in the sense that it was waiting for the new. And when Christ came and died for us, he inaugurated the new. What makes the new covenant new is that Christ is the answer. Our relationship with God has been made new. Are you this morning made new in Christ? These are all the hard questions that come here at the end. We have a challenge of understanding when all these saints are coming together. Listen to what it says. All of them, therefore he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. Highlight those words, circle them, put them in their, your mind because here's the point. Jesus came. Yes, God so loved the world. And he came so that you would get the inheritance. God already had planned for you something greater. God has already left you with something that's greater. He's put, planned a future together with him. He's got a, a whole future life laid out for you. He's done everything he could to prepare it. Jesus even said that when he would go to be with the Father, he would prepare that place, that when he would come again, he could bring you, come and get you and take you to that place. You see, there is an inheritance that's waiting for those who are called by God. Let me tell you something that's very challenging. The writer's going to tell us in a minute. Jesus didn't die for everyone. If Jesus died for everyone, and his death is perfect and supreme, and covers those sins, then who would be in heaven? Everyone. Did he die for you? Have you been called by God? Only you know that. I wish I could wave my magic wand and bring some of you to the point where I knew exactly where you were. Oh, in the graciousness of my life, I would tap every one of you with my magic wand, throw the little dust on you and say, you've been called, you've been called. There might be a few in my journey through ministry that I would take my wand and wave it over them and skip them. And maybe do that because I'm not perfect. And I would like to see the vengeance on some. And I'm reminded, no, let God do that. But that's not how it works. Only you know. Do you know the whole understanding of election and the whole understanding of predestination, pro-orizzo in Scripture, only tied to people? The understanding of foreordination and what God has laid out all comes down to the people before time in which God has laid out and said, I have a plan for my children. You know who his children are? Those who are called. Do you know why we preach the gospel to the world? It's because we don't know who are what? Who are called. See, all of a sudden this begins to get specific. The superiority of Christ is because it was a must 
for him to come to accomplish God's plan in order for the inheritance to be released. And what do we mean by that? Listen to these confusing words when he says this. For where there is a will, verse 16, the death of the one who made it must be established. And where the will takes effect only at the death, since it's not enforced as long as the one who... Folks, what he's really doing is using a play on words here because diatheke is the same word for covenant and testament. But he's trying to give you the analogy that simply says this, that there is a big inheritance for you that has been given to you by God, but you can never have it until there is the death of the one who gave you the inheritance. He's trying to give the analogy in terms that we would understand. It will always fall a little short because Jesus just didn't die and was done. He rose again. He's now our interceder. But what power we have is that the one who promised that he would leave us something is back alive to make sure what? That we receive what it is that he's promised us. But we could never claim those things without the death. And it's not just for the will and the testament. He's not trying to tell you to, hey, everybody write a will and leave everything to your pastor. That's not what he's trying to say. He's not trying to say give it to your children or leave it behind. We live our lives trying to store up everything so that we have something to leave for those behind. As if God won't provide for them along the way. It's not about a testament. I want you to take and write the word covenant there. It's the same word. Because he takes us on the true journey back to what it means to have the death, not of a testament, but of a covenant. Listen to what he says. Not even the first covenant, verse 18, was inaugurated without blood. All of a sudden, we begin to realize, verse 17, for where a will takes effect only at death, in other words, you could look at the words that we get in Scripture. The actual Greek words is epi nekrois the bios. It's the word that means this, through the death ratified. It's the death of bodies, the word nekrois. It's not of one specific, it's the dead. He's saying without the death of bodies, there's no covenant that can be established. And he takes us back to Genesis 15. I won't redo the whole story for you, but if you remember it all, the story of God coming to Abraham, he says to Abraham, I'm covenanting with you, and I want you to bring the heifer and the animals and the birds, and I want you to lay them in a line. Do you remember the story? And he said, I want you to take the animal, and I want you to what? I want you to cut it. Barit, karit, barit. I want you to separate the animal in two, and I want you to make an aisle down. I think I've told you this before. It's an amazing analogy of a wedding where sides are separated and an aisle is made and two people will walk down an aisle and they will make a covenant that says for better for worse through sickness and in health richer or poorer until what death the covenant that you're making as you walk down this aisle was a covenant that they were establishing in the Caesarenty covenants or into the parody or patron covenants that said, so be it, we covenant down this aisle, and if so much it fails, treat us like the blood of those beside us. Until what? Death. And if you don't keep that covenant, it's the covenant of death. If you remember the story, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and who came down through that aisle? Only God. 
And in a nutshell, he covenanted with himself, not Abraham. And he simply said, Abraham, I just covenanted to do all these things for you, so help me me. And if I don't keep them, I'll be treated like the animals on the side. In other words, I'm either a God who keeps my promises or I'm a God that's like being dead. You see, even the original covenants were ratified with blood. And this morning, you need to realize that when Jesus came and he died for you, is because he had made a covenant with the Father, and the Father made a covenant for you. And without the shedding of blood, there would be no, not only forgiveness of sin, but there would be no inheritance. There would be nothing for you to have. Take away the death of Jesus Christ, and everything that God has planned for you will never come to fruition. Everything that God has stored up for you, Everything that he's pre-planned as your inheritance, no longer will it ever be received until there is the death of the one who ratified. God foreordained, foreloved, predestined, and called before the foundations of the world. And Jesus died to make sure the inheritance would be passed on to his children. The Holy Spirit now convicts us. We could spend time on that and how the Trinity works to bring it about. But listen to what he's telling us. Everything is ratified on this blood covenant. That's what chapter 9 is all about. Your life is hanging in the balance of the death of Jesus Christ. Not an animal given by the high priest. Not a sacrificial ceremony that's taking place in a temple or a tabernacle. Not a service that's in the worship service here. Not a songs that we celebrate or sing or the amount of money that you place in the plate. Your entire inheritance hinges on whether the sacrifice of Christ was acceptable. The necessity of Christ. So he begins to tell us not only is it this supreme sacrifice we need, but it needs to be sufficient. It needs to be able to provide what we need. We need to be purified through this. So he begins to tell us this. Look at verse 22. Once we understand that the death was necessary in order for all that God promised for us to have to come true, listen to what he says. He says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified. We're talking about the copies, the things here on earth. And then he says this. But the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices. Just what in heaven needs to be purified? Just what in heaven needs to be purified? You want me to give you the answer? You. Me. We're that future heaven. We're the ones that's going to fill the tabernacle. We're the one that's going to fill the heavenly of heavens. We're the ones that it needed to be sprinkled. That's why in the Old Testament, he sprinkled not only the furniture and the building, but he also sprinkled who? The people 
He had to get them clean so that they could be in the presence of God. They could not come into the holy place if they weren't made clean. The problem was the cleanliness only lasted so long, and then he would have to do it again. And so every year, it would happen over and over and over. And the people constantly realized they'd never be able to stay with God. They would never have enough. They would never be fully clean until something supreme comes along, more sufficient. And that's what verse here tells us. There was something that needed to be better. In all the rituals, the purifications, in all that needed to be clean in the earthly, pointed to what would take place for you when Christ died. You see, when Christ died on the cross and he entered the heavenly sanctuary, the high priest took his blood and sprinkled it around. Sprinkled the holy place. It's furnishings. That's what happened on earth. It's a picture of the heavenly. And he cleansed the place. And then he said he also sprinkles who? You. He uses it right out of Leviticus when he says it's his blood, the sacrifice. He says it at the Lord's Supper, taken right from Leviticus. When they took the animals and sprinkled the people, he says at the Lord's Supper, this is my blood, what? Sprinkled for you. You're what needs to be made clean to be in the presence of the Father. And so I'm stuck asking you, commanded of me in my vows and my oaths, trusting that you are in a relationship with Christ, but I must ask, have you been sprinkled in the blood of Christ? If you haven't been sprinkled, you haven't been, the actual word there, baptized. You haven't been baptismost. You haven't been covered in the blood. You haven't been made clean. You haven't been ready and made prepared to be in God's presence. His sacrifice ratifies the covenant, prepares the way for you to be with God. And his blood cleanses you, purifies you, and makes you ready. How? Well, let me tell you that quickly. Here's what it says, verse 25 and 26. It says this. Nor was it offering himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood of his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundations of the world. And he doesn't have to do that now. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages. What has Christ done for you? He has once for all. Folks, listen to the play on words. You may not see it here in the English, but it's the play on words between the old repeatedly and the new once for all. If you were to see that in the Greek, it would be the polakis against the epihapax. It would be the ones that's repeated over and over against the one that is once for all. Now, your Bible doesn't use that because it assumes that. Your Bible probably says this. He appeared once for all. And I want you to put a highlight right there in verse 26. And I want you to put a dash there and I want you to draw a line out there because most people interpret this and they misinterpret it when they say, look, he entered once for all. And they'll say that means all people. That is not true. Follow the context. Follow what it's saying. 
he entered, the whole context is not about how many people, about how many numbers, and about how often. It's all about how many times it must take place, how often the priest went, how often the sacrifice was made, how often it was repeated. He entered once for all what? Time. Write that in the parentheses beside that. Because when you wrestle with things, we're not talking about anything outside the people who are called by God. And if you've been called by God, his sacrifice is once for all what? Time. It it is so powerful and supreme and covers so much that it never has to be repeated again. No matter what sin you've committed, I could ask you this morning quickly, how many of you have ever committed a sin? I'm not looking. I could almost guess who you are. But if I were to ask you this way, how many of you committed a sin after you claimed Christ as your Savior? Let me look back down. I probably could still guess who you are. Do you see what happens is we begin to let Satan interfere in the assurance of our salvation. We begin to doubt what it is that Christ could do. We begin to lower the supremacy of his sacrifice and the sufficiency of his grace. And we begin to challenge what it is that God has prepared from all eternity and the plan that God had for us and the inheritance that he has waiting for us. We begin to question whether or not it's really going to be ours and whether we will get all of it or just some of it and what's my reward going to be and how. Man, the devil just has his way with us. Because once again, we lose sight of the fact that when Jesus died, he died once for all what? Time. Which means he died for every saint in the old, every saint now, and every saint that is yet to what? Come. You want to rejoice in the love of God? Rejoice that your children's children, if the Lord tarries, He's already died for if they're his. He's already covered their sins. He's already paved the way for them if they just ask. Have you asked? Lord, I am a sinner. I need to be cleansed. I want you to sprinkle me with the blood of your son I want my inheritance I want to know that it's assured I want to know that I've been purified and ready for your presence I want to know that I'm yours forevermore oh I don't want this palakas repeated events I don't want to have to worry repeatedly every day whether or not my sins are covered I don't want to have to repeatedly worry about whether or not I'm perfect or whether or not I'm going to do something wrong or whether or not people are looking at me the other way or whether or not I'm going to be there. I'm tired of the palakis and I'm ready for the epihapax, the once for all. I just want to know that you've covered me and it's over. That's the assurance he gives us. He has put away our sins once for all times. It's a climatic event in history concerning all the sacrifices that were ever made. Once Christ gave himself, nothing else matters. Listen to what he says in verse 27. Not only did he put away our sins, but listen to this security that we just said gives us. 
Just as he appointed for man to die once and after judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, bears the sins of what? Go ahead, say it. Many. Keep it in its context. We're talking about those who have been called. His death is supreme. It's perfect. It's sufficient. It's all-encompassing. And it will only happen once in all time for the many. For those who call upon the name of the Lord, we're told. Because you can only call upon him when he first, what? Calls upon you. And you can only love him because he, what? First loved you. The binding of the covenant promises, listen to verse 28. So when he says this, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin. He's not coming back to say, hey, by the way, you've done some things I need to go ahead and get fixed before you come in. Hey, by the way, you kind of overexceeded the grace that I had for you, and I want to make sure that I give you a little more before God comes back. How many of you have ever been there? I won't look again. I'm sorry. He wrote to the Romans, and he said the same thing to them. Well, if God's grace abounds every time I sin, then I might as well keep on what? Sinning. Folks, that's the world we live in right now. Oh, don't tell me God's going to judge me. He loves me. And if he loves me, he loves me for who I am. Which means it doesn't matter what I do. If he's going to love me for who I am, he's going to take me for who I am. I might as well just live the life that I'm living, and it doesn't really matter. And what right do you have to judge me? Because God loves me. And what right do you have to say that? Because God's the one who's giving judgment. We live in a world today that's making a mockery of the sacrifice because they think that the once-for-all, supreme, sufficient sacrifice is for any and all who live. What they don't realize is that it only applies to those who have been what? Called. And I don't know who those are. I do know this. If you're here this morning and you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart and you feel the need to have your sins forgiven and you don't want to miss heaven and all the inheritance God has for you and you realize that your own works and abilities are not enough, you're tired of this repeated sacrifice in your mind, I got to be baptized again, I got to be baptized again, I got to reconfess. I got to go get this over. If you're tired of all that, maybe you just need to say, save me. Save me from all that. Sprinkle me. Purify me. Forgive me. Cleanse me so that I may be in your presence and have that assurance the rest of my day. Yes, there's this security. Man dies once and then judgment. And the only thing that changes that, listen, is that Christ died once and then brings what? Salvation. The whole climax is that you're going to die. Oh, I wish I could tell you that I've said it almost every funeral I've ever been a part of. The one thing that you and I have in common 
is that each and every moment that we're together, we're one step closer to the moment we're going to die. I don't know when that is. And when we're together, we all understand that when we die, there comes judgment. Unless the blood of Christ has covered you, prepared you, purified you, and put away your sins, and now heaven eagerly awaits your arrival. Oh, I know when I go to see Jesus, I will be rejoicing. When I see God face to face, oh, I'll be so excited to see. I'll have a lot of questions. I don't know if he'll let me express them all. He may just, and I won't have any more questions. I'm not sure. But I will tell you this, he will be as excited to see me. Because for all eternity, he planned a place for me to be with him. And he gave his son to ratify that covenant. To cleanse me, purify me, and prepare me. So that he could spend eternity with me. I feel pretty good. I want you to feel pretty good. And so that's why it's so important to understand the last little bit. When all of a sudden David Williams is one who writes when he says this, to refuse the cross for salvation is to choose the cross for condemnation. Bear with me. To refuse the cross for salvation is to choose the cross for condemnation. It's either judgment or life. And it's all based on Christ. Here's what he says. I'm not coming to deal with sin, but to save those who what? Eagerly await. Just like he gave us the picture of Genesis 15, just like he's given us the picture of the tabernacle and the sacrifices, he now gives us a picture of the high priest who would hopox into the holy place regularly. And I remember one person teasing with me in the foyer, and they said, you know, Pastor, it must feel kind of good to not be in the old anymore. I said, what do you mean not be in the old anymore? He said, just think if every time you went up to preach, we'd have to tie a rope on you and put a bell on you and make sure what you said was right. I can't imagine how many times I'd feel a tug on me thinking, all right, preacher, hold on a minute, come here. You see, they were eagerly awaiting. Why? Because the high priest would go into the heavenly and he would offer the sacrifice that was prepared and made ready and then hoped, hoped, that it would be accepted by God and his life would be spared and he would return to those who eagerly awaited him to say, we have been accepted. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus, like the earthly high priest, has now gone into the heavenly sanctuary and taken himself as a sacrifice, sprinkled his blood throughout the holy place, covered the people that are awaiting him, and has offered himself a sacrifice 
and for all of us who have called upon him are eagerly awaiting his return. The supremacy of Christ's sacrifice. I guess I could summarize it this morning and simply ask you, are you eager for him to return? Or are you saying, Lord, please just, I've got some more things to work out. Lord, please just give me a few more opportunities. I'm not ready. Or can you say, as John said, come, Lord Jesus, come. I eagerly await. Has the blood of Christ cleansed you? Has the blood of Christ put away all your sins? Through the blood of Christ, have you entered the presence of the Holy of Holies? And if you trust the blood of Christ, you can be assured that God has accepted his son and he's coming back for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you would call me Lord, why in a family of six, it would be me. In a history of hundreds, it would be me. In a city of thousands, it would be me. Lord, why would you forelove me? Lord, why would you prepare an inheritance for me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving me, for preparing all eternity for me, and taking your only son in my place so that I would not be judged, but I would be welcomed in your presence and be saved. I praise your name through Jesus, your son. Amen. Amen. If you'll receive the benediction, and now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's children said, Amen. Have a great Lord's Day.